0: This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the cutting edge of technology isn't really technology and disruptive transformation happening at DISA. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Army will create a new cyber office and the Air Force reveals a new approach to unmanned warfighting. John Harper is managing editor of Defense Scoop. Mark Pomerlow is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome, John. I start with you. The Air Force, you write, sees an opportunity to scale production of drones and software in wars of attrition. Is this a lesson that the Air Force is learning from what's going on in Ukraine? Is this coming from other, some other source? or Where is this coming from in the Air Force's mind? Welcome.
1: Thanks, Francis. Well, it's both. Uh, there's been a long-standing concern about the capacity of the defense industrial base to really ramp up production uh, of platforms to replace those lost during a, a protracted, uh, large-scale conventional war, the likes of which uh, the U.S. hasn't seen uh, in a while against uh, a high-tech, uh, advanced. Uh, adversary. Uh, but also the ongoing war uh, between Russia and Ukraine uh, has highlighted, uh, you know, the uh, high level of of losses that militaries can take in these types of uh, protracted conventional conflicts. And so, you know, the Air Force is looking at uh, what it could do to try to replace losses in the event that the U.S. military got embroiled in that kind of you know, large scale drawn out uh, campaign where it sustained much higher losses uh, of equipment uh, and personnel uh, compared to the post 9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. And so one, uh, one area that they're looking at is being able to quickly ramp up production of uh, unmanned aircraft, um and uh injecting new software capabilities uh to try to make up for losses of uh you know more high end uh, man platforms uh that they might sustain during that kind of war and you know obviously it's you know systems like the F35 joint strike fighter for example if a bunch of those got taken out you know by China say for example um you know, it would be tough to just very rapidly replace those, uh, you know, officials don't expect there to be a situation like, you know, during World War II, or the US economy quickly just pivoted to mass producing, you know, tanks and aircraft and, and, and trucks, uh, you know, systems nowadays are much more complex, uh, take uh, much longer to build. And so that probably wouldn't be uh, an option, at least, um, you know, uh, not, Uh, you know, something that could be done quickly during a a conventional war.
0: What does the supply chain look like now for drones and not just for the units themselves, but for the components that make them up?
1: Right. That's certainly an expanding field, uh, not only uh, in the uh, defense uh, industrial realm, but also uh, in the commercial sector. Uh, You know, companies are working on a variety of uh, technologies, not just platforms, but, you know, sensors are being developed, uh, you know, new types of uh, autonomous weapons are being developed. And so, you know, the Air Force is looking at this and saying, hey, you know, there are a number of companies out there that potentially meet these needs, uh, not just, uh, you know, here in the United States, but uh, manufacturers abroad um, from, you know, friendly nations that, you uh, would be potentially allied with the United States. Uh, and so, you know, this is an area of emerging technology where, you know, the Pentagon is hoping it could leverage that and, you know, buy more of these types of uh, perhaps less expensive, uh, more easily built systems to replace losses of uh, high end fighters,
0: for example. Um, Mark, you are writing under the headline, Army to Create New Offensive Cyber and Space Program Office. What will that office encompass? Where will it live and what will it do? Welcome.
2: Sure. Oh, hi, Francis. Um, essentially, what the Army has decided to do within its program executive office, intelligence, electronic warfare and sensors is break off its uh, cyber component from its electronic warfare office, which is currently uh, called electronic warfare and cyber EWNC. Uh, this will break off into a separate PM, as you mentioned, called uh, PM Cyber. Uh, really, the, the, the point of this was um, all offensive cyber capabilities under dod are 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 pretty much uh governed by u.s cyber command and so um as u.s cyber command is developing new capabilities uh the services as executive agents are responsible for actually procuring those systems the army uh has the responsibility for uh, procuring uh kind of one large uh system it's a joint firing platform in which all the joint services and and the cyber mission forces will use to actually launch kind of their offensive um, uh, capabilities uh so that and part of some other joint requirements kind of got a little bit too big for this ewnc office needing uh to spin off a separate standalone office uh this will be created in, in, in 2023 um and I think it's still TBD in terms of where it will be housed. Currently, a lot of this work is done at Fort Meade, um, despite uh, the, the, the PEO itself living at uh, Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland.
0: For a long time, everybody knew that the military services and maybe some of the IC agencies uh, engaged in offensive cyber now it's it's kind of an accepted part of war fighting isn't it it's, it's 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 just something that everyone understands this is we do this everybody else does it too and so it doesn't really make any sense to continue to pretend we don't
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think that that for a long time uh, officials sort of struggled with this this level of openness and deterrence. And I I think to to some degree it's still going on right now, but clearly um, officials are are still grappling with what do you disclose and what don't you disclose. And I I think there is now. kind of a recognition of sorts that you really need to articulate publicly what kinds of capabilities the united states has and when they're willing to actually have capabilities as a deterrence measure against some of our adversaries obviously um, they don't want to disclose too too much to, to tip their hand or provide any advantages to our adversaries but clearly um, there's a need to articulate that um, as a signaling to them, but also to attract some some other folks. Cyberspace is, is a really competitive area, and uh, they're looking for a lot of both talent and non traditional vendors to help support that mission. And if they don't talk about it publicly, they'll never attract the talent or the um, industrial-based partners that they believe that they need to succeed in this space.
0: Is this something that you expect to see the other services do, too? Or is this unique to the army because of the role with interacting with cyber command that you talked about a moment ago?
2: Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, obviously, as, as I mentioned, the other services, um, I, the Air Force is currently the executive agent for, for two programs. One is kind of a large um, data repository. Uh, the other is, is kind of a, a cyber planning uh, command and control platform that they're procuring for the other services. Um, I, I think right now this might be just unique to the Army, given that uh, their cyber office was housed within their electronic warfare uh, uh, office as well. Um, the, the other services right now have um, kind of separate um, organizations for all of that. So it's possible we could see something maybe more streamlined from the other services as these programs continue to grow and continue to um, add users. Um, but I, I think right now, um, that's that's uh, we're not exactly sure on that yet.
0: Mark, what are you tracking in the week ahead? What uh, will you be following to report on?
2: Sure. So uh, this week is actually the uh, annual Billington Cybersecurity Conference. Uh, we're going to hear from a lot of uh, both public and, and private sector um, leaders in the, in the cyberspace world. Uh, many speakers from DoD talking zero trust, CMMC, um, cyber operations. So uh, we'll, we'll hopefully hear a lot of uh, information on where the government is going with several of its initiatives.
0: John, what are you following this week?
2: Bill LaPlante, the Pentagon's top acquisition uh,
1: official, is going to be speaking uh, on uh, the department's modernization initiatives at a conference this week, Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But I also want to note that we are in the final stages of preparing for the official launch of Defense Scoop's new website. Uh, on Monday next week, as well as the big defense talks conference next Thursday, where we're going to have a lot of high level officials, uh, including Bill LaPlante. So stay tuned for that.
0: Look forward to all of that. Thanks very much for joining me today, gentlemen. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about those stories and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. John mentioned the Defense Talks event happening next Thursday, September 15th, at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see all of the lineup and you can register through a link in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Department will roll out a new marketplace to buy technology that's connected to artificial intelligence. The goal is to get that tech into the department faster. Major General Garrett Yee, U.S. Army, retired is Vice President, General Manager for the Army Sector at General Dynamics Information Technology. He's former assistant to the Director of the Defense Information Systems Agency. Garrett, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I love following you on LinkedIn to see the places that you're going in your new role and all the people that you're connecting with. As you're doing that, and also based on your experience at DISA, what are you seeing as some of the Real powerful end uses, the use cases for people to use these cutting edge technologies like AI, like uh, machine learning and others all across the department. Welcome, Garrett.
3: Thank you for having me on the show, Francis. Great to see you and, you know, good to be back on the show. Uh, in terms of the opportunities that are out there for us to leverage data, AI, ML, et cetera, uh, I think we all are very familiar with what those are. Uh, Some very basic stuff, for example, uh, predictive maintenance of systems, uh, protection of our networks, uh, opportunities to uh, automate and optimize a lot of the repetitive tasks that we do. In my world that I came from, one of the areas that uh, we saw great potential was in contracting. You know, in the organization that I came from, we processed over 50,000 contract actions each year. Many of, those ta- many of those tasks were repetitive in nature. Many of those tasks required a human to be involved with, right? And so to the extent that we're able to, you know, leverage, you know, data automation, you know, uh, using RPA, which leverages later on these to maybe machine learning and potential AI, you know, that, that, that just opens up the opportunity for our workforce to be doing the higher-skilled tasks rather than the repetitive tasks. That was the world I came from. The world that I'm in now on the delivery side uh, of this is the same thing just on the other side, where we deliver capability to our customer, in my case, the army, uh, in ways that you know, can be done so much more optimally and accurately. You know, One of the areas that the government struggles with is the ability to you know, have a, a clean audit, right? we talked about the audit for years, right? And the challenge with the audit is the ability of having traceability from, you know, from point A to point B in terms of how that dollar is spent, how that capability is delivered and how we you know, provide some sort of meaningful support to the warfighter in our case in the Defense Department. So absolutely lots of opportunities to leverage some basics of, of data in my opinion.
0: I should be not surprised, and I guess I am because I was on vacation last week and I'm still kind of getting back in the groove, but I, I shouldn't be surprised that you mentioned data first and not a particular piece of the technology landscape that I referenced when I introduced you. Because that stuff, that's the gasoline really for all, for all of those vehicles, isn't it?
3: It's absolutely, it's foundational, Right. And, you know, in, in the old days, we would say, well, garbage in, garbage out, right? We've heard about that. And so unless you have good, clean, homogenous data, how can you use that to do any kind of predictive, you name it, predictive maintenance, mean time between failure, et cetera. And the world that I came from before, you know, joining the Army years ago was in the insurance world where, you know, all we did in the organization that I supported was, a data gathering organization where we scrub data, they have data definitions, you know, depth. Our, our muscles of our organization were actuaries, and what they needed was clean data for, for the ability to predict what may happen in the future, right? And so it's not the only thing that data can do for us, but the very basic thing that we would like to do in part is to help us predict, you know, the future of what may be happening and what... We may need to do right so big big time you know the army is in the process of, of pursuing an optionally manned vehicle right optionally right well you got to know that that's got to involve a ton of data to be able to run that thing optionally and we will get there absolutely and if the private sector can do it for example um i have an electric car and it gets updates over the net and it does have the ability to do some things in a semi-automated way, right? But it's not still without a ton of data and infrastructure that's required to support that. And I say infrastructure state say cloud. The cloud absolutely needs to be part of that solution.
0: You mentioned the audit a couple of minutes ago, Garrett, and you talked about traceability, and it strikes me another challenge that I've heard about uh, regarding the audit the data is a key part of is replicability, the ability to do it over and over again, year after year after year. It's one thing to get to a clean audit opinion, and it's a whole nother thing to keep a clean audit opinion over time. And it strikes me that that's where that data and the automation of it is going to be critical for whether it's the army or the entire department, or some other component to be able to keep a clean opinion when they get to it. You're
3: absolutely right, Francis. You know, the ability to eliminate human error at every opportunity helps us along the way in that journey, right? And so autom- automation helps to eliminate human error, which over time leads to better accuracy in whatever we do.
0: What do you see as the biggest opportunity moving forward for improving and and collating and curating the quality of the data that the department collects or the individual pieces of the department collect, Garrett?
3: Well, I think we already have a number of major efforts underway that will allow for that. It's, it's called, you know, ERP, Inter- Enterprise Resource uh, Planning, where, um, you know, it aggregates a lot of desperate, at one point, programs, brings them together into an you know, enterprise type of capability. And and in doing so, you know, forces the automation and the data cleanup of all that input into those ERPs. So over time, you know, we have less and less disparate sources of similar data, right? There's there's a saying that we're all familiar with, uh, the person that has two watches never knows what time it is, right? We're always questioning the validity of a data source versus another data source, a source of records. So, uh, you know, therein lies an opportunity in the department to, to improve upon this in a, you know, in a large-scale way. It's helping the us into that, in my opinion.
0: What do you think is the biggest roadblock to realizing that vision, Garrett? Oh my gosh.
3: <laughs> there are many roadblocks to success in anything we want to do. You know, and, and, and there's no, I think, one thing that you know, um, uh, will, will drag us down. But I will say, though, the system that we have is the best system that we have, which you know, has a lot of checks and balances along the way, right? And now that I'm on the, the private sector side, it's no different than when I was on the government side. And that is, you'll let a contract uh, it, and, and you're hoping to, to move forward, and there's a protest, right? And so, you know, there there are absolutely valid reasons for, for, for a protest, uh, but uh, the the frequency of that has always been the challenge for, for both sides to be, you know, for the, for our our DOD to move forward, right? So that I think has been, you know, a challenge for you know both sides of of, of, of that equation there. It, it, the, the challenge there is, uh, as many of us know. Um, Depending on the timing of their protest, if you go over a fiscal year, right, and and then you're in a continuing resolution, you know, you can't do a new start. So uh, there are a lot of components. That's one of it, you know, continuing resolutions have always hurt us. We know that Uh, it it prevents us from being able to move forward cleanly. Uh, There are a lot of good things underway. Uh, We've seen some some, you know, success stories. And so I'm not going to say everything is bad. Some of the things that we're doing in the defense department are really hard to do. And we want to put a schedule to it. And um, sometimes, um, you know, the leadership doesn't outlast the schedule. And so leadership changes, priorities change. Uh, That's kind of the nature of what we do. Um, But some of the stuff that we're doing is really hard. And And in my case, I applaud the Army for being ambitious and moving out with several of their efforts to move forward. Uh, So we'll
0: see. Garrett, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks very much for coming on the program today.
3: Great to be here, Francis. Thanks for having me.
0: You can read more about the AI marketplace I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. DISA says it's making progress moving to the successor of its MillCloud 2.0. It's moved about half of its 120 accounts to the Stratus platform. Sharon Woods is executive director of the Cloud Computing Program Office at DISA. At Fed Talks, she tells moderator Lynn Martin of Google about the mission of her office.
4: The mission of the Hosting and Compute Center is to deliver best value hosting and compute solutions to the warfighter. But I think Mia said it really well. It isn't about the technology Uh, Lieutenant General Skinner, the DISA director, calls it velocity of action to win. So it's not about delivering hosting and compute solutions. It's, It's really about delivering technology so that we achieve the mission of national defense. So the day in the life... A million problems come in trying to knock each one of them out. But I do like that that mantra of, of disruptive transformation. That's really where we are right now is breaking the mold and trying to think about things differently. Great. So
5: as you think about that, we've heard a lot, you know, initially everyone rushed to the cloud or tried to. And then there was kind of a swing back a little bit, and I think as people really kind of settled in, we've learned and seen organizations really striving to get to hybrid cloud, you know, environment. How do you guys think about that, and what are some of the learnings, best-in-class practices you've learned with some of the leading-edge innovative solutions you guys have driven there?
4: Sure. So, I think you're 100% right. Uh, things didn't exactly plan, uh, pan out as everyone intended of just this mass move to the cloud. I think what's so key is optionality. So, everything across a spectrum of data center, including not just servers, but mainframe technology, and then moving into private cloud where it is still on-premise, and then moving into public or commercial cloud. And right now, of course, we're in the middle of the acquisition process for the joint warfighting cloud capability, so when that's online, it'll really unleash a spigot for us of being able to access that kind of technology. For the Department of Defense, that optionality means not just on the home front, but figuring out how to deliver those capabilities to the warfighter overseas. That's where things like private cloud become really important because we have to have under the rules control of our data. That means being on U.S. soil. So we can't rely on public cloud vendors that have data centers in different countries. So we have to bring that back into our own uh, bases on the home front, or I'm sorry, overseas. And we have a number of those, but that's where private cloud becomes so key. And then you have tactical edge and being able to take that technology on mobile platforms that also provide hosting and compute. So the, really the underlying theme there is optionality.
5: Yeah, so as you think about that, that kind of leads into that whole agile methodology. And I've heard you guys, you know, talk a little bit about where you're trying to get there. Can you elaborate for everyone how you're thinking about that and really trying to transform that into the Department of Defense as well?
4: Sure. So one of our mantras is not to undertake a project, uh, a new effort, unless we can deliver against it in less than six months. That is not, I would say, common in the federal government, but that is what you do with Agile. You scope a project so that you really can deliver a minimum viable product in less than six months. But what is so key to that, and we've heard this theme over and over already, is including the user in truly driving the direction of the product. And so from the very beginning, you're not waiting to talk to the user at the end when you have your MVP that's really anti-agile. It's from the very beginning of, hey, we have these capabilities, we deliver against them, you get the feedback, you pivot, you move. That's what allows you to achieve the speed because you're getting the real-time feedback that's providing direction rather than doing it in a vacuum. The other piece to delivering agile is making sure you're paying attention to your people. And so we have been undertaking this effort to marry up our folks that are more, you know, maybe well-versed in agile with some of our more traditional workforce and building these small teams that are moving out on agile efforts that continue to deliver in less than six months. And we've had a number of successes in that area just in the last few months.
5: And what would you say some of the challenges you've run into or lessons learned as you've tried to you know, drive that transformational innovation into the department?
4: Some of it is just the perspective, the, the total disbelief that you can deliver in something in less than six months. I think one of the other barriers is that when you work on an agile project, you have to use different technologies and you have to manage your schedule, your cost, your performance in a very different way. So we use different platforms um, like Jira and Confluence, which is not as common. Typically you have an Excel spreadsheet, nothing against Excel, but you know, having a 300-line spreadsheet with a schedule that's essentially wrong on contact, that's not how you manage an Agile project. So I think some of the just basic foundational technologies and then breaking that perspective that it's impossible.
5: Yeah, so that kind of leads me to our next topic, which is I've heard you talk a little bit about developing the technician of the future. And as you think about that, can you share more with the audience of how you guys are thinking about that and how you see that evolving into the future, you know, folks that will be working in the next decade or two down the road?
4: Yeah, so I'll give the example of our project on containers as a service, and that one uh, delivered in less than six months. The basic premise was to take Kubernetes containers and move them into the data centers. We have a lot of customers in the data centers, and we can't leave them behind. We have to give them an opportunity to incorporate modern technology and advance And when you are able to deliver something like a Kubernetes container in the data center, when they are in the cloud and they're using containers, you've just opened up a ton of opportunities for interoperability and the transfer of data in a very different way if they hadn't standardized like that and have to develop custom solutions. When we did that project, we took some of our cloud workforce that was more versed in Agile, a little bit more versed in Kubernetes containers, as you can imagine. We married them up with the data center workforce, and they worked together to deliver against a very, very specific scope of web servers. You know, We picked something very specific, so rather than setting up individual web, you know, web servers in, in the hundreds... You set up one, and then you push those out to the different customers that that need the service. That drove some of the thinking around technician to the future, because you've broken almost like the technology is hybrid. You have to make your workforce hybrid. You have to give them an opportunity to learn new skills because they're capable. They have the critical thinking capacity. It's just giving them a chance to do something differently. We nominated and have a senior training champion who right now is undergoing, she's doing a gap analysis of what we have and what we need. And what we're finding is we need a series of curriculum for different buckets of different types of folks, whether it's making them more of a specialist in their area or letting them really cross-discipline and and incorporate different types of methodologies, different types of technology in a way that they wouldn't have had they stayed siloed.
5: Great. So one last question. I know we have about a minute left. Yep. as you think about the different areas of transformation that you're working on from the people to the tools to the processes, what would you say is the biggest inhibitors that you run into? And how do you think about that? Could you continue to drive innovative solutions and kind of lead across out to the market with some of the things you've delivered from there?
4: Yeah, so I go back to the disbelief. And that's a cultural issue. And it is amazing how much that is a basic inhibitor. And all of the processes that we have, whether they're fiscal or acquisition or business, they're all set up for an anti-agile type process. Breaking that and doing that uh, disruptive transformation that Mia mentioned before, That's really uncomfortable. The concept of a six-month MVP is really uncomfortable. But folks have to embrace that discomfort. And it it takes some leadership. It takes a team coming together and doing something unexpected, delivering, being a model and an example of what is possible. And then it starts breaking down some of those stuck mindsets And it just opens up doors.
0: Sharon Woods, Executive Director of the Cloud Computing Program Office at the Defense Information Systems Agency at FedTalks. You can find a link to watch all the presentations from FedTalks in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week. and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.